If you uh, do not have a Bible, raise your hand and we will get one to you. Um, if um, you've been the last, well, weeks and months, we've been going through the book of Matthew, um, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Um, we're going to be taking a slight detour from Matthew today and PT will pick it up again next week. And next week, I believe, we'll be looking at um, Peter walking on the water. So that is a really cool account. Um, so yeah, be sure to come next week. Um, but this week we're going to be taking a slight detour and we're going to be uh, looking at a chapter in the book of First Samuel. Um, for those of you coming on Wednesday, we've actually just started going through Samuel. Um, so you're going to actually be getting a little sneak preview of what is to come. So a little bit of a spoiler if you've never been through the book before. Um, but also give you a taste of what we are currently starting to go through on a Wednesday as well. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel and we're going to be in chapter 12. So, in chapter 12. And as you're kind of finding your place there, let me just give you a little bit of context. Uh, 1 Samuel was found in the Old Testament, so that's going to be in the first half of your Bible. And basically documents Israel's transition of leadership from judges to kings. And when we begin in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, Israel is coming out, well, it's basically coming to the end of an extremely dark period in their history as the last, the last verse of Judges perfectly summarises in Judges 21, 25 when it says, In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as we'll see in this chapter, the problem wasn't that they didn't have a king, but rather the truth is they already had a king. The king they had was God himself. The problem was that they failed to acknowledge him as king in their lives. And as you kind of read through the book of Judges, it's an extremely dark time when literally, as it says, they literally did whatever they wanted. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. And we see some of the most... uh, uh, darkest and atrocious acts take place as a result. And this kind of brings us to the question which I want you to keep in mind for for our time together in the Word. Is this, who is the king of your life? Who is the king of your life? Recently I um, have had the opportunity to meet up um, with a friend, an old kind of family friend, who's currently struggling through addiction. We're going through a book together And the first few chapters, it talks about this very idea, this very idea of a king and a kingdom. Uh, And in the book by a guy called Ed Welch, it says this, You are travelling either toward the kingdom where God is your king and father, or you are committed to a rival kingdom in which you try to manage life on your own apart from God. In other words, these decisions are about allegiances. And then he carries on, who will I worship? Who will I bow to? Some bow to God, and if they do, they can't take any credit for it because God pursued them first in the same way that he is pursuing you. And others worship themselves and their own desires through the pursuit of money, security, comfort, prestige, power, drugs, or sex. There are two kingdoms, and which kingdom are you heading towards? Where does your allegiance lie? And I want you to picture, uh, literally picture a throne above you and put to yourself the question, who 
or what is sitting on that throne? Who is the king on that throne? So keep that question in mind as we go through this text. And then we begin in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. And basically, to give you a summary of the whole chapter, it's basically Samuel's address to the people of Israel during the coronation of their first king, Saul, or first official king, Saul. And Samuel, he is the last judge and the first prophet of Israel, is coming to the end of his life and ministry. He has faithfully served God and his people, and he seeks to do so for the very end. And that's kind of one study Bible says it this way. Before dying, Samuel vindicates his ministry before the people of Israel. Once again, calling them to repentance, he leads the people in renewing their commitment to God. And at the close of this chapter, Saul and Israel are poised to reap God's covenant blessings. However, the threat in verse 25 hints at what awaits Israel and its new king. So as we begin this chapter, think of this. Here is essentially Samuel. He has faithfully uh, served the people. He's faithfully served God. He's coming near to the end of his life, to the end of his ministry. And a king has now been anointed. A king has been appointed. It has been Saul. And essentially we see kind of this transition from Samuel as leader to Saul as leader. And this is what it says in verse 1 of chapter 12. And now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you and I am old and grey-headed and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. You are never too old or too young to be used by God. As Samuel nears the end of his life, he looks back and remembers the beginning, how he has walked before the people and served them since he was a little boy. Uh, And parents, this is kind of a message to parents, a reminder to us as parents, but also as leaders, and even just as a church, children are never too young for God to speak to them. And we looked at that on Wednesday. We looked at how God came and spoke to Samuel. And it was amazing how Samuel, this child, was more faithful than the majority of the adults around him. And the question is, do we believe this truth and are we pursuing this truth? It's true, we can't make children believe. We can't make our children believe. It is their choice, but there is still a part that we can play. As parents uh, and even as, as just members of the church, are we investing in children? And do we really truly believe that they can be spoken to by God's word? And as we see time and time throughout the Bible, Jesus makes it clear. This message is not just for those who are, who are older, but it is for those who are younger as well. Um, and we can't just leave it for other people to tell, Jesus, to tell our children about Jesus. We need to be telling them ourselves and a good place to start is just opening up the word you don't need to be a theologian as a practical kind of advice just as you go to bed open the word with them as i kind of for for me personally just on my own because i don't have any kids you know it's maybe one day one day maybe but um even on my own i like to spend a bit of time just reading the word just before i go to bed but even as parents we can with our children before they go to 
go to bed, read the Bible with them. Uh, and I know some really cool kind of children-focused uh, Bibles as well. There's like the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is really a really cool Bible. Um, and if, you, if, you, if that kind of piques your interest, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get you one. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's not just for the parents, it's also for us as the body of Christ. You know, we may not have our own children, but there are those who are children in our fellowship. And how are we seeking to share Jesus with them and to show Jesus to them? Are we investing in them and do we truly believe that this, this truth of the gospel not only has the ability to speak to us and change us, but it has the ability to speak to them and change them. And then Samuel continues on in verse 3. And he says this, because Samuel wasn't just a servant from a young age, but he was a, a faithful servant for the majority of his life. And he says this in, in verse 3, Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I, whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And in verse 4, And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand, and they answered, He is witness. Samuel makes his final address to the people, and essentially he asks them a question. He says, Have I been faithful? Have I served you faithfully? And in his questioning, he, he kind of, for us, outlines what an unfaithful servant leader looks like. And these are the, in these questions, he says these questions. He says, look, have I taken from you? Have I cheated you? And, and if you look in other translations, it will say defrauded you. Have I oppressed you? Have I taken bribes? And have I looked the other way? And, and the people agree that he has been faithful. And, but we also, this is kind of cool, we actually get a glimpse of what it means to be not just an unfaithful leader, but what it means to be a faithful leader. And an unfaithful leader is one who simply takes, defrauds, oppresses, and turns a blind eye to the people he is called to serve. Let me say that again. An unfaithful leader is one who, turns, who, who t- simply takes, defrauds, oppresses, and turns a blind eye to the people he's called to serve. And as a leader, am I guilty of these things? And I ask you the same question. Those of us who have been called to lead, whether that has been as husbands or, or fathers, as employers or pastors or ministers, have we been faithful? And on the surface, we could easily brush these things aside, right? Because, because, because you know, we think about it, it's like, I've never, I don't think I've ever taken from the people that I'm called to lead, or I've never, I've never taken a bribe, I've never cheated anybody, you know. And, and there, are, there are moments where we can see very clear examples of this in, 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 in not just in leaders' lives, but in churches' lives. 
But I think often, if we're truly honest, if we truly look behind the heart of some of those things, in our own subtle ways, we've been guilty of the same thing. When he says, look, have I taken from you? When we, when we enter into a relationship, when we're looking to lead others, are we looking to see what we can gain from that person? Or are we seeking how we can sacrificially lay down our lives for that person? For us as, for us as, for us, for those as husbands, are we seeking what we can take from our spouse, or are we seeking what we can give to our spouse? As church leaders, are we just seeking how we can use others and take from others, or are we seeking how we can give to others? And then it goes on, have I cheated? Have I defrauded? And the idea, when we look at the idea of, being, of cheating or defrauding, in a sense it is, it is an, something which is like an act of deception in order to gain something, right? The idea of cheating and defrauding is you, you kind of are deceptive in certain way to gain something in another. And that's kind of like a question, uh, a question I kind of, for us to think about is this, if as, as leaders we are, we, and I'll for example give the, an example of somebody who would preach from a pulpit. If somebody who would preach from a pulpit, if, if, if for example, if my life is one way on a Sunday and different during the week, if the person that uh, you see standing in front of you at the pulpit is different than the man at home, is that not in some way cheating and defrauding? If I am not truly honest about every part of me, not just my, my, uh, my, in the ways in which I'm, I, I succeed, but also in my failings, is it not to defraud, to deceive you guys? Uh, in a way for me to maybe gain affirmation from you or to, just to make you like me? Is that not in and of itself defrauding and cheating? So as leaders, are we seeking to be open, seeking to be honest? And the beautiful thing is this. This is when we are, it actually, it actually protects us. When we walk in, that's what, I mean, throughout the scripture, you'll see Jesus constantly telling us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the open as he is in the open. Be in the light as in, he is in the light. There is, there, is, there, is no, there is no communion between light and darkness. It is in the light. And at those moments, that means you're going to be exposed at times. You're going to, your flaws are going to be seen. But when they're seen, it means that Jesus can deal with it. Jesus can resolve it. And the problem is if we hide all of that, it just builds and builds in the darkness and before it completely topples down. And I've, from personal experience, I've seen that in people's lives. When they hide their sin, they hide their sin and it grows and it grows and it grows until finally it topples down. And then he continues, have I oppressed anybody? And when meditating on this idea, look, have I oppressed people? Uh, Let me see if I can try and explain this way. If if when I'm seeking to lead people, if if I'm acting in a way in which I place myself above Jesus in that person's life, is that not to oppress them? If I am working my way in such a way that I become the ultimate authority in that person's life, above Jesus... Is that not a form of oppression? And you can see, you can see it in when a mentor is mentoring somebody and then they, they, they mentor in such a way that they isolate that relationship. That that person is only coming to that mentor. And whenever you hear the words that they need me, they need me. 
Without me, they're not going to succeed. Without me, they're not going to know God. As soon as you become that saviour, you're already going down the wrong path. You're already beginning to oppress that person. Whenever you are taking away what is belonging to Jesus and trying to give it to yourself. So as leaders, are we pointing people to Jesus or are we pointing people to ourselves? Are we trying to step in the way and take what Jesus is deserving of? And then it continues on and he says, have you bribed? And, and, and the idea is, have you looked the other way? And he, the idea is this, Samuel says, that I have not, nobody has given me, I have not received a bribe to look the other way. And we may not receive financial bribes, but there are often moments where we will look the other way to gain something, right? We may see a friend beginning to fall or beginning to sin, and we will look the other way because we're worried we're going to lose their affirmation. We're going to lose being liked by them. Isn't that not in some way a sense of, of, of bribery? It's like, I, I, I want you to like me so much that, that I, I hold that as most dear, that I'm not willing to step out, I'm not willing to say what I need to say. Is that not in some ways to be bribed? And when we kind of begin to look at the heart of these things and meditate on these things, we begin to see that there are often times that we are guilty, that I am guilty, that I am unfaithful. So have you been an unfaithful leader? Then you are in good company. Because in Jesus, we have hope. And despite our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And Samuel reminds the people of this very thing. He reminds them of God's faithfulness throughout the years. He says this in the next verse, 6 to 7. He says, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. God is is faithful. And Samuel commands the people to stand still, to take note, because he wants to reason with them. And I like how he uses that word, reason with them. Because the truth is, we are so often very quick to forget God's faithfulness. And we need to be reasoned with. We need to be wrestled with and say, no, no, God is faithful. And the truth is, we are so often quick to forget. And our forgetfulness affects our hope, it affects our relationship with God, and it affects our relationship with others. We need to remember that God is faithful. And how does Samuel do that? He reminds them of what God has already done. And we'll begin to go through that in a second. Remember what God has done. Think back to what God has already done in your life. The lives he has already changed, how he has already spoken to you, what he has already done in you. Meditate on those things and then meditate on his word. Because we have a whole book which speaks about his faithfulness. 
from beginning of creation right until our destination, it speaks and it cries out of God's faithfulness. Meditate on it. Remember it. And the first place that, uh, that Samuel goes to, he goes back to Exodus. Listen to this. He says this in 12 and verse 8. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. He goes back to Exodus. And he says, look, he reminds them that God is a God who hears our cries and God is a God who acts. If you look back at the Exodus account, you see that the Israelites are enslaved. And we see that God hears their cries and he sends a redeemer. He sends a saviour. He is faithful to act and he was faithful to redeem. And it's really interesting that one of the first things that Samuel brings up to, rem- to remind them of God's faithfulness is the greatest act of redemption to take place in the lives of the Israelites to that point. That, I mean, to that point, in the, Israel, in the history of Israel, that was the greatest display of redemption and it is a foreshadow, a picture of our redemption through Jesus Christ. You see, just like Israel, we were enslaved... But the difference was our enslavement was not physical, but it was spiritual. It was not temporary, but it was eternal. It was not involuntary, but it was voluntary. Our slavery was sin. Both the sin that we had committed, but also the sin that had been committed against us. And also just from living in a broken and sinful world. And we we stood condemned under the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. And just like Israel, we were in desperate need of a saviour. And that is where Jesus stepped in. It says this in John 8:34, And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He says, look, sin enslaves you, but Jesus, the son of God, sets you free. And then he says this in Romans, Paul says this in Romans 6, 5 to 7. For we, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Jesus died on a cross and rose again. And taking upon himself the punishment we deserved so that for those who would repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in him, receive redemption from the penalty, the power and the presence of sin. And Samuel reminded these people of God's faithfulness in the exodus, in that act of redemption. And let us remember God's faithfulness in our redemption. 
in how he has redeemed us in the greatest act of redemption in our own history, which is the cross. He is faithful. And the cross is proof of that. But in spite of this great redemption, just like us, Israel were quick to forget and instead turn in search of other things. And read this in verse 9. So this is, this is kind of Samuel. He is recounting the history. And what we've seen first so far is this, that God is faithful. God redeems and God saves. But unfortunately, Israel were quick to forget. And this is what the result was. And when they forgot the Lord their God, and this is Samuel recounting the history to the people, and when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Caesarea, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the kings of Moab. And they fought against them. Israel forgot their true and living God, and instead go chasing after idols. They go chasing after false gods. Essentially what they do is in their hearts they remove God as the ultimate king on the throne and they forget him and they replace him with something else. And, and as a result, God, God lets them go. He literally lets them reap the full consequences of their actions. And the, and the question which comes to mind is, is this judgment or is this grace? And there will be moments if we are hell-bent on, on following sin and, in, in, and, and running after anything but Jesus, there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a time when he's going to, he's going to let that go. He's going to let us go and, and let us run off into that. And, that, and, and, and do, we, do we, is this judgment or is this grace? And let me put forward to you that this is both. Israel, there are, and let me explain it this way. There are moments in our lives when, as I say, we turn our backs on God and we instead run after something or someone else. And God, uh, in his love for us, will actually let us experience the full consequences of our actions. And why does he do that? Because there is nothing more important to him than, than, than our relationship with him. And because sometimes letting, letting us go out and into that, into that place where we're we're, we're feeling the, the full consequence of our rebellion against him. It is the only way to make us come back home. You think about it with the story of the prodigal son and how the, the father gives him his inheritance and the son goes. And it's only when the son hits rock bottom that he finally realizes his sin and finally repents and turns. So there are moments where, where God allows this to happen so that we would come back home and number two, so that we would never run back to that idol again. And there are different ways he does this. Sometimes he does this by removing protection or by letting us experience the natural consequences of our actions. Or sometimes it's by exposing our sin, literally tearing the roof off of our house so that people can truly see our true state, can see our true heart. But it's always, although it is judgment, it's also grace. Because in that judgment, he's calling us back. In that judgment, he's wanting us to come back. 
And I love it. As one preacher, J.D. Greer, says in one of his recent sermons, he says this, any judgment before the ultimate judgment is mercy because it can wake you up before it is eternally too late. There will be moments where God allows that judgment because he wants us to come back. He wants us to, to come back to him. And we see this time and time again with Israel. He, and as it says, he, he let them go. And, and we see the enemies begin to enslave them again. But it's because he wants them to come back. He wants them to realize their sin and come back. And that is the beauty of God's faithfulness. That he is waiting to welcome you back. Just like the father and the prodigal son, if you would just repent and turn back, he is waiting with arms wide open, ready to embrace you. And if that is where you find yourself today, you've forgotten God and you've run after something or someone else, then come back home. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, forsake your sin and run back to Christ. And this is what have this is what we and this is and if we continue on in, in verse ten, we see how Israel responds. And then they cried out to the Lord, and this is still Samuel recounting the history. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Asterisks, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you at the heart of of at the heart of Israel's issue, it was a worship issue. Uh, they chose to bow down to false gods, and and our, the false gods in our day may not be images carved out of gold or out of wood or stone, but we still have a worship issue. We still have an idolatry issue. There are moments where we turn our back on gods and we run after something or someone else. Have we been guilty of that? Have we pursued somebody instead of him? And this is how will God respond when we repent? And we see this. They realize their sin and they repent. And how does God respond? And the Lord sent, it says verse 11, the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Bendon, Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety. This is uh, God's response to our repentance is to send a redeemer. When the people repent, God is waiting and willing to rescue them. And the question to us is how bad does it have to get before we will repent and turn back to him? How bad does it have to get before we will realize our heart, realize our sin and run back to him. And the sad thing is that despite God's faithfulness, the Israelites just don't seem to get it. In verse, the next verse, in verse 12, it says this, And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, And now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. Despite God's faithfulness, 
despite him wanting and desiring to be the king of their lives, they still, they still wanted something else. Christian, you have a king. Will you acknowledge him as king or will you go in search of another king? And to go in search of another king is to reject the true living king. And what does it look like to run after a different king? Well, we kind of get a clue into this a few chapters before. Uh, when, we, when we originally read of the account when Israel asked for a king, this is what it says. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And this is 1 Samuel 8:19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel were driven by a desire not just to be like the world, but they, 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 well, yeah, they desired to have an earthly king, a worldly king. Instead of being set apart from the world, they desire to be like the world. And this is what they said. If we looked in that verse, this is what they said. They wanted a king to be or to rule over them. And they wanted a king to judge them. And they wanted a king to go out before them. And they wanted a king to fight their battles. But here's here's the thing. These things were meant to be fulfilled by God alone, by the true King. Am I looking for somebody to be in ultimate authority over me or to determine what is right or wrong, to lead me or to fight my battles for me instead of seeking God to do those things? And ultimately, it looks like this. It comes in this question. Does the ultimate authority morality, guidance and strength in my life come from the living God or from a false God? Is it from him or from another God? And, and granted, God can use people in these different areas of our lives, but is, is he ultimate in those areas in our life? Does he have the final say as my king? And it comes into this question. Is Jesus... My ultimate authority. Is Jesus my ultimate morality? Is Jesus my ultimate guidance? And is Jesus my ultimate strength? Is Jesus the king that he should be? So which king will you choose? And there are consequences for the king that we choose. It says this, if we fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice. And this is chapter 14. Sorry, not chapter 14. This is verse 14 of chapter 12. Samuel continuing on. He says this, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, 
then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. And the idea of fear here is the idea of being in awe of God. Who are we in awe of and who do we serve? Whose voice do we obey? And there is a beautiful promise hidden in this text, right? When we remain in awe of God, when we serve him, when we hear his voice and when we obey his commandments, we will continue to follow him. A heart of faithfulness is one that is continually in awe of God, in service to God, and in obedience to his voice. Is that where your heart is? And this promise is for both those who lead and those who are led. And the place where all starts is with awe. Being in fear, in reverence of God, have we lost our awe? And Samuel says this in the next verse. Now therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? And I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Samuel and God seek to restore the people's awe, the people's reverence. And it all starts with seeing God for who he is And for who we truly are. He is holy and we are sinful. And God reveals his glory to the people because he wants to restore in them a sense of awe again. To capture their hearts again. That they would be in awe of him. And have we lost our awe? Have we forgotten his faithfulness, his majesty, his power and the holiness of our king? And my prayer today is that God will restore in us that awe. That he will give us again a great awe of him. And in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, how should we respond? You know, in that moment when we truly see God for who he is and who, unfortunately, who we truly are for who we are, how do we respond The only way in which we can respond is in honest and heartfelt repentance. And this is what I love about about Jesus. Imagine, what what if we just came to him and said, God, give me that awe again. 
You know, so, so, so much of our time we spend our prayers asking, you know, not, for, not necessarily for wrong things, but imagine thinking about how many, times, how many times we're praying, we're asking for his stuff, we're asking him to give us physical things, to give him his stuff. Imagine if we were to like, Lord, give me you. May you be the end and not the means. And imagine if our simple prayer was this, Lord, I confess, Lord, I've lost my awe. Give me back my awe of you. And we kind of see this in the next few verses as Samuel leads the people in a recommitment to God. And he says this, Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness yet. Do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. Samuel starts with the heart. And he says, serve the Lord with everything you've got, with all of your heart. It's like, put your heart back into it. Does he have not just part of my heart, but does he have all of it? And Samuel acknowledges the great sin of the people And the truth is, we need to realise we're not really as great as we think we are. We're not so different from these Israelites. We really are just as sinful. We really are just as blind. And then Samuel calls the people to repent and follow God. And that's the same call we're putting out. I'm going to put out to you today is this. Turn your hearts back to God and serve him and follow him with everything you have. And why should we do it? Why should we serve God with everything we have? Because he is faithful, because he is worthy, and because everything else is empty. Listen to this next verse. Verse 21, he says this, And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. When we turn away from God and go after something else, we are choosing that which is empty. And empty things, as you see from the text, empty things are things that cannot profit, cannot deliver, and cannot satisfy. And am I guilty of this? What false God, what false person or thing am I turning to instead of God? Who am I looking towards to satisfy me? Who am I looking towards to profit me? Who am I looking towards to deliver me? Is it Jesus or is it that which is empty? And I love the language he uses there. It's like, this is empty. Instead, run after that which is not empty. Run after Jesus. And then he reminds them once again, my God is faithful. In verse 22 he says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. Listen to that. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. God is faithful. And we need to hear that. God is faithful. 
He has not forgotten us. Our God is the God who never forsakes us because it pleases him. It, it brings him joy. He enjoys to do this. This brings him joy. This pleases him that he would make us his people. He would make a people for himself. If you've given your life to Christ, that is you. You are part of his people and it pleases God. It pleases the creator of the universe to make you his people. And throughout this chapter, we see this, this constant pattern, right? God is faithful, man is unfaithful. God is faithful, man is unfaithful. God is faithful, man is unfaithful. Forsake your sin and turn back to him because he is faithful. Samuel ends this address, he ends this chapter with one last command and one last warning. And he says it this way, Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth, with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And this chapter, he ends with this beautiful encouragement. He says that, be in awe of God and serve him in truth with all your heart. And the result of when we fail to do so is pretty much summed up in that verse of warning. Where he says, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And it is a warning which is unfortunately unheeded by the very king that was taking over. And in your own time, I encourage you to read through the book of Samuel. And you kind of see from this point on, throughout the rest of the chapter, you see the tragic downfall of Saul. The very king that was taking over, the very king that was being anointed, did not heed this very warning. And as we get to, uh, we, as we get to the end of the book of Samuel, and we see how far, fall, how, sorry, how far Saul has fallen, we see a man who lost his awe, who failed to serve God in truth, and ultimately a man whose heart was never fully God's. In the downfall of Saul, in King Saul. And you, you, it's really sad because it happens bit by bit, but you see that his heart was never truly God's. And we can see it this way. When you get to the end of Samuel, you look at this king, you look at this man who was appointed to lead, who was called to follow God and called to serve people. He had this great calling. He had this great God. He had this great king. And he went after something else. And his life can be summed up like this. By the end of his life, Saul was a man who sinned against the Lord and spent the rest of his life trying to avoid the consequences. And Saul spent years trying to hold on to something the Lord had already promised to take away. And this resulted in him doing unspeakable things. The full consequences of his sin didn't come to pass until years later. It affected his family, the people he leads, and the others around him. And I think the key to learning from Saul's mistake is being aware of the state of our heart. Going deeper below the surface 
and asking God, where's my heart? And we see this, we see this in David. And, and, and I love, you, you get to see, and uh, when I was kind of younger, we, at my church back at home, we went through this kind of, um, uh, like this kind of, uh, this Bible course. So throughout the day, you spend a whole day and you do like an overview of the whole Bible. And when we got to this part, it was often said that Saul had no heart, that David had a whole heart and, and, and Solomon had half a heart. And the idea is that, that Saul just didn't really have a heart for God. And we see that David, though, he, he fell at times. His heart was still for God. And we see Solomon, how his heart was kind of half-hearted for God. And um, we're reminded of David. And he says this in Psalm 139. David says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Wrestling, as I've kind of spent my own time in Samuel and just seeing, man, how, how Saul fell. It, we need to first of all remind ourselves, there I go but by the grace of God. I am a man just like Saul, just as sinful. And I think the key to learning from his mistake is continually coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, where's my heart at? And in those moments where I have to be honest to be like, Lord, my heart really isn't fully for you. Come to him and be like, Lord, forgive me and change me. This is what I love about, about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus isn't just about, okay, look, this is a standard I'm just going to leave you to kind of do your own thing and see if you can reach that standard. But instead, rather, Jesus, when we give our lives to him, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit, him himself, lives inside of us to become the men and women that we can never be. To become faithful. So when we find ourselves in that place where, like, Lord, my heart hasn't really been fully for you. It isn't really fully for you right now. Lord, Change my heart again. Restore to me that awe. And Lord, enable me, empower me to fully place my heart fully in you. And that is my prayer for you, my prayer for me, that God would search our hearts, would truly reveal where our hearts are, and when he does, that we would repent of our sin and our half-heartedness that we would literally forsake everything else and we would serve him, our true king. Because as Samuel says, consider all the great things he has done for us. Consider all the great things that Jesus has done for us. And in those moments where we are going through the craziness of life, it is often easy to forget that God is faithful. And that often in the most darkest times of our lives, he is still at work and ever present. And the question comes back to us, is this, will we remember that he has done such great things and he and he alone is worthy of being our king? So the question to you guys and the question to me is this, who is my king? 
is it King Jesus or is it somebody else? So with me today, let us recommit again to give him everything that we have. Let's pray together, guys. Father, I just want to thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful despite the moments and the times when we are unfaithful. Lord, and I ask so that you would reveal to, her, reveal to us the true state of our hearts, where we're truly at. And if we're honest, Lord, there are moments and there are times where our heart just isn't it where we've lost that all, where we've forgotten your faithfulness, where we've turned and we've searched after something else. Father, today we want to recommit again to you. Forgive us for the moments where we have forgotten you and ran in search of everything else. Lord, forgive us and once again stir up in us a deep awe of you. Stirring us a greater and deeper affection for you. Change our hearts, Lord, that we would be full on for you. And when, as we pray this, we remember that we, we offer this prayer in good company. Because you are, you are the God who changes hearts. You are the God who changes people. And Lord, we, we, offer, we say to you, Lord, I have not been full on for you. I have, my heart has not truly and fully been for you. It's been for somebody or something else. Lord, please change that in me now. Forgive me of my sin. I repent and I turn of that, Lord. Once again, may you, Lord, I invite you to take that place back on the throne of my life. Lord, that you would be my king and that I would be full on with everything I have in service to you Lord I pray that as we leave today that you would help us to remember these things to meditate on these things to put these things into practice to reveal where our heart truly is that we would draw closer to you and not away from you Father give us a heart for you may you change us to become faithful people And may we never forget that you, God, are faithful. Despite all the craziness around us, some of it is of our own doing. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not of our own doing at all. And as we read through the Bible, you make it clear, we're not not promised a pain-free life, but rather you promise to be with us through that pain and you promise to use it all for the good of those who love you. Lord, help us to trust you and to remember that you are faithful and you truly are worthy of our worship. Lord, we invite you once again to be the king of our lives. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.